Welcome to a special Noble Ape recording celebrating 15 years of the Noble Ape development. Today, it's my great pleasure to have a chat with an old friend, Douglas Rushkoff. How are you, Douglas? Hi, good. Good to talk to you. You were one of the strong influences of both with the early development of the simulation, even really the point of setting up the simulation and uh, bringing in the others, bringing in like-minded folk who are interested in talking about ideas of society and simulation and all that broader philosophy associated with those kind of things. For folks who approach you today and ask you, how do I set up a large interdisciplinary project to bring in, I guess, the maximum exposure, the, the best people associated with the discourse in a, a large interdisciplinary project. What kind of advice do you give them? Gosh, um, I don't know. I think it's challenging. Um, I think in some ways it's more challenging now than it was back in the old days because um, the, the barriers to entry to you know any kind of online discussion or to any kind of group are so much lower now that it's harder to find a self-selecting community. You know, because it used to be that the community would self-select based on who is willing to deal with whatever it is one has to deal with to, to find and join that community. You know, joining a, a Usenet group, say, or something um, in the old days was, was hard enough for people. It, it kind of kept out, it kept out the riffraff and often kept out the crazies. So now, um, how do you plant a flag, you know, in the sand and tell people, um, to gather around something. Um, it's tricky, you know, it's tricky. And, and there's also a heck of a lot of replication going on. So, you know, you plant a flag in the, in the sand and someone else is planting the same flag in the sand somewhere else. Um, how do you, how do you engage with that person in a way that you can both really stake out the same territory and, and collaborate? It's, it's, you know, it's trickier. I get approached by folks who are interested in starting artificial life projects in large part through my work with Biota, but also the legacy work that I've done with Noble Ape. And I think the interesting point that I put back to them, which you've mentioned, is find the others and collaborate initially. And then, as you say, work out how you are, in fact, different. So if you can, if you can reflect back 15, 20 years ago in terms of the, the way things were uh, when you wrote Siberia, how do you think folks who perhaps are picking up Siberia now and reading it could uh, could get a broader sense of, uh, firstly, what it was like back then? Because you've, you've described quite uh, quite well the idea that the folks that were online back then were typically the folks that had uh, conquered the technical barriers associated. But also, really, I guess, as you've described, it was a more idealistic time. So... In terms of uh, what people can learn from Siberia to create these interdisciplinary projects now, what do you think the, the delta has been in a kind of greater level of detail than you gave in your, in your first answer? People who were willing to experience uh, computers or the net or any kind of uh, uh, online activity um, were, were a self-selecting community, not just in that they had... Um, some programming chops or some knowledge of how computers worked, but they generally had a more open-minded perspective on reality itself. The, the, the premise of Siberia, of that book, was really that the psychedelic culture and computer culture were part of the same wave, that, they were, that they were, uh, there was tremendous overlap between those communities. I mean, the reason I found out about the early cyber cyberpunk uh, culture of San Francisco of the late 80s and early 90s was because my most psychedelic friends from college had ended up moving out to Silicon Valley to, to become part of Sun and Intel and and the other uh, you know sort of new, new new media companies out there and I was uh, for me that was a disconnect I understood the math people going into computers, but I didn't understand the deadheads going into computers. And, you know, what I found out was that psychedelic people were, were some of the only people around, not the only, but some of the only people around who were comfortable in hallucinatory realms, who were comfortable with the massive um, creative control that one gets um, when they're building a, an online environment or when they're building a, a computer environment. So that really only children and psychedelics users seemed comfortable 
exploring and building an environment where whatever you imagine you will behold, you know, where your dreams become real. It's almost like a um, uh, kind of a schizophrenic reality um, uh, where your hallucinations become part of the fabric of the world in which you're living. So what, what I'm excited about now is whether there are possibilities to kind of fold that culture back into the middle, you know, whether this kind of the the culture of Mondo 2000 and reality hackers and boing boing and fringeware, rave culture, um, fantasy role playing, uh, gaming, um, and and simulation, you know, uh, and the the kind of um, virtual reality dreams of some of the early pioneers, from you know Jaron Lanier and Ted Nelson to you, for example. Um, whether we can bring that back in. Are people sick enough of the kind of banner ad LinkedIn Groupon um, nightmare of commercial net culture to revisit some of the potentials of these technologies to connect people in, in previously uh, uncharted ways? It is a fascinating thing because certainly the psychedelic community has been very receptive to a lot of my work and really welcomed me in, which is quite surreal because I'm, I'm not, I, I don't feel part of the community through the, uh, the uh, pharmacology, but I certainly do in terms of the psychology, and you've, you've put that beautifully. Siberia introduced me to Terence McKenna's work, and I've spent a lot of time since listening to McKenna primarily because he was so prolific in, in audio recordings. But uh, as the more I listen to his work, the more I actually hear elements of the early Noble Lake development and the stuff that he was saying. So it, it, a fascinating uh, juxtaposition of my development of simulation and some guy in, in California and Hawaii and Mexico uh, rambling on probably a decade to, to five years earlier. You spent a bit of time with McKenna, obviously through writing Siberia and probably other things as well. How do you um, think McKenna's work changed your own thinking? I guess he had two major influences on me. Um, one, he was um, very good at seeing uh, crisis as as birth. You know, he he was one of the first people to remind me that you know the woman undergoing labor um, appears to be dying. You know, and unless you you understand that she's actually you know about to make a new person, um, you would think it's, it was a catastrophic event. So um, he was good for, um, and I guess because he was such a psychedelic person, he was very used to getting into dangerous psychedelic territory, you know, places where you'd call a bad trip. Um, so people who are experienced with the dangers of bad trips are very good at figuring out ways to see doom as birth, you know, to see the worst as actually as the sign of, uh, of good things to come. Um, the, the other way that he influenced me was actually as a, in terms of counterexample. Um, I felt like um, for all the great things he did and accomplished, I feel like there was a, uh, uh, an exclusivity and elitism to his model of of apocalypse you know that that this uh he talks a lot about you know his theories of time wave zero and the end of the mayan sulkin calendar and in 2012 reaching this this concrescence where you know human consciousness rises from the chrysalis of matter but only the people who've managed to you know kind of have the dmt experience are going to make it through the great attractor at the end of time um, and and I don't I don't like that I I prefer to think of human evolution as a team sport as as something that we kind of we all make it through or none of us make it through that it's not like part of the human organism um, somehow gets there while everybody else is sort of left behind um, to die in in the global warmed uh, apocalyptic reality. So as a, as a counterexample, I kind of wanted to move on from that and say, okay, um, I get what he's talking about, um, but now how do I how do I push that through so that so that we all make it? How, how can I make this less exclusive so that 
um, even the people I don't like and I don't agree with get to come with us to the next stage of human evolution rather than just the great counterculture psychedelics people who I do agree with. One of the mantras of McKenna that I live by, really, is find the others. And certainly this caused me to seek you out uh, pretty early on in my, in my development. And I think the legacy of McKenna, and particularly for people that listen to him with regards to his kind of uh, edge of science or uh, post-science or these kind of things, is to really look for other contemporary thinkers, contemporary philosophers, people who are just emerging that may follow that chain of, as you've described, uh, kind of radical, uh, radical direction changing, counterpoints, all the things that, uh, that make McKenna interesting, someone not only to listen to, but also to think about, as you've described, in terms of how does one sit in, in his uh, perspective. Who are the current uh, philosophers, perhaps some of the up-and-comers, not necessarily in the psychedelic community, but are, are pushing in the kind of direction that McKenna pushed in? Well, interestingly enough, you know, Find the Others wasn't McKenna. That was Leary that, um, that came up with that one. So, and that was, uh, he, was, um, he was giving a talk in Berkeley in 69, uh, I believe. And um, they, uh, uh, a girl who had had her first, you know, set of psychedelic experiences asked Leary, you know, I've, I've, I've seen all this stuff and everything's changed, you know, and, and, and I understand things differently. What do I do now? And he said, oh, go find the others, um, which was, you know, a kind of a brilliant, uh, a brilliant response. And he, he always, you know, made it in his flip way, but he, he meant it for real. Go find the other people who've seen what you've seen and share and and you know he was very much a, a believer in the um, in the kind of Aristotelian learning model where a few people sit together and literally conspire um, on the future and on 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 what they want to do. That studying is something that happens, you know, in these little in these small groups. Um, then in the uh, late ninety, I guess in nineteen ninety nine or ninety eight, I went to the um, Disinfo Conference, which was um, Richard Metzger had a website sort of for alternative culture and and fringy, fun, uh, conspiratorial things. And he did this convention where a bunch of us, you know, from me to Grant Morrison to Robert Anton Wilson, all gave talks. And I gave this opening keynote. And I, I that's when I kind of revived Find the Others as a slogan. And I challenged people to redefine find the others from Timothy Leary's notion of find the other people who've had this experience um, to rather find the others. In other words, find the people who haven't had this experience. Find the truly others, not the other ones like you, but the ones who are other, other than you in order for us to actually... Um, grasp hands and move across the great chasm together. And I, I uh, uh, encourage people, find the corporations, find the bankers, find the politicians, you know, find those who actually need our help because they are desperate, they are unfulfilled, they are confused, and they really are looking to us, we members of the counterculture, for a sense of guidance, for a way to navigate this new, highly discontinuous and, and radically changed um, landscape. And I think they still are. You know, I think the, the founders of Google and Apple and, and, and Facebook, and they, they don't understand how to navigate except by valuation. And valuation is not, um, is not an appropriate metric for the uh, for the thing that we're building. In terms of folk who are in their 20s currently, who are perhaps scholars of, of all the people that you've mentioned, who do you think is emerging as, as folks to watch, basically, in terms of this ability to, uh, to bring in the others as you've defined them? Because I think what you've described in terms of noise is a problem that I find looking for the others, um, actually the original term of the others versus your use of the term, and I guess I'm always looking for people such as yourself to uh, kind of point to and welcome other folk who are maybe in their 20s or 30s uh, to look for, for other folk to, uh, to follow, to discourse with and these kind of things. In terms of that emerging group, could you give maybe half a dozen names 
of people who you think are worth following, uh, getting a sense of what they're talking about and perhaps engaging in discourse with? I mean, that's where I'm throwing a conference actually in October of this year called Contact, which is about kind of just that. It's like, how do you gather gather the people that are doing these things and support them and people can collaborate on each other's projects. It's sort of a, uh, the idea of the, of this conference is to help people identify the others in their fields who are engaged in similar pro- projects, you know, so that we don't just replicate effort and so that we can, you know, promote what, what other people are doing. Um, there's, there's a lot out there. I mean, I would, I, on the one hand, I would say, look at the, at the, sort of the meta sites um, and the meta people who are gathering the others. So, you know, that would be, you know, someone like me or Michelle Bowens at Peer to Peer Foundation or Neil Garnflow at, at, at Shareable, Paul Hartzog at Panarchy or the people at the Future Forward Foundation. Future Forward is, a, is another um, great place to look. Uh, these are sort of people are Arthur Brock um, who's involved in currency? There's there are people who are um, doing that gathering, so that you don't have to just look for um, the individuals. Um, in terms of role models, you know, there's there's also tons. There is uh, Adam Fisk who's doing um, Little Shoot and and Brave New Software. There's Mark Pesci um, in Australia who's who's gathering. Uh, a lot of different kinds of people who are involved in, you know, what he would call um, hyper experiences. I'm excited by the people who are trying to develop alternatives to Facebook, you know, and there's, you know, there's 10 or 20 of those. So there's, it purely depends on what area you're involved in, whether you're, if you're interested in currency, I could list you 20 um, interesting efforts at alternative currency. If you're interested in an alternative kind of a, a alternative net project. There's people who are just developing those from meshes to um, new ways to connect people um, online. There's a ton of great sort of freedom box like activities where people are developing, you know, sort of suitcase uh, single source solutions to getting online through satellite connections in, in, uh, uh, war zones. So there, are, there are lots and lots of people. There's you know older people like me uh, that you can connect with, um, and then there's younger people who are just out there doing stuff. So it's it's so much it's so much that it's hard. Um, that the hardest thing is trying to keep track of it. But you kind of have to find what's your what's the area that you're involved in um, now because it's such a bigger culture than it was back when there was just 50 of us. Uh, trying to build out stuff. The contact conference, is that the same contact conference that's been going on for the past 20 years that started as a, a contact to extra, extraterrestrial kind of NASA fringe conference? Is that the same conference? No. Contact is being done for the very first time, at least the the contact that I'm doing. Um, it's not. The tagline for contact is the evolution will be social. And it's really uh, trying to reinstate the notion that Internet technologies are communications technologies rather than marketing technologies. And it's, it's for you, it might, not, it might seem obvious, but for um, the majority of people in the, in the business world and who, under, who are looking at social media and the net, they, the majority of people believe that the net is a way of selling things. You know, that it's a way of buying and selling products from one another. And what I'm trying to do is to promote the notion, however silly it might be, that the net is more of an extension of the telephone than it is of the advertisement. And that there are all sorts of ways that people could use networking technologies to connect with other people and engage with each other in new ways. Whether it's, you know, trading ideas or trading merchandise or developing new currencies together or promoting radical thought in repressive regions, that there are all of these uses of the Internet that have, have been pushed to the periphery that are actually should be understood as the central uh, purposes of these technologies. So I'm uh, basically doing an unconference-style summit where I've got, you know, 50 or 100 people who have really highly developed projects you know, from uh, from guys like Adam Fesk who are doing Tor and Little Shoot to people like Dennis Crowley 
who developed a, a kind of what's I consider a big company now called Foursquare, which allows people to um, identify sort of where they're where they are locationally and transmit that to others. Um, basically, coming together uh, to say. No, the net that we envision is not a marketing opportunity. It's not about selling ads. It's about connecting people in, in new ways to allow for new kinds of learning and new kinds of commerce, new kinds of government, and potentially even um, new ways of expressing what it means to be um, a human being. And then we're having this thing called the bazaar, which is a a two-hour demo free-for-all where people just get places at tables and show each other what they're doing, um, after which we're going to pick three or four of those and give them $10,000 awards, just these sort of grants to keep doing what they're doing, no strings attached, as a way of kind of proving that, that, um, we're, that, this, that we're here to support, um, support these efforts. And in a way that, you know, to a lot of people these days, $10,000 really does make a difference. You know, I know Google doesn't need $10,000 to promote G+, you know, but uh, real people who are doing, uh, trying to build out uh, sort of early stage efforts at creating uh, networking alternatives, $10,000 really does make a difference. So in terms of a, a couple of themes that we followed, that, that one in particular the ability for folk who are starting out actually to uh, get publicity. And I think this was interesting both through Siberia and also probably stronger in, in media virus and coercion. The idea of using big business ideas, I guess, in terms of small startups and uh, independent developments and these kind of things certainly impacted on me quite heavily. You've just started a, a new form of publishing. Well, you've, you've moved from what was traditional publishing into ebook publishing you have a new publisher uh, you've done a lot of publicity uh, recently associated with this new book for folks who are starting out uh, maybe not just with books but let's start with uh, electronic publishing method how do you think they actually break the publicity barrier that is created currently and what kind of tactics do you think they should use in order to get publicity to their ideas, their writings, and potentially their projects? You're asking the same question that mainstream publishers ask me. You know, they, the big publishers feel that they are locked out of the publicity, the, the publicity stream because they're not online and are not online in the ways that are real. You know, it's uh, they want to know how to get on boing boing and shareable, and and how to get people talking about them on the internet. You know, because um, when you actually look for readers, there are not that many venues that you can publicize on that don't simply replace a book sale. You know, as if you go on a, a TV show and talk about your book. Most people who watch that TV show aren't reading anyway and aren't buying books. You know, if you get a very big review in the New York Review of Books, for most readers, that's the substitute for reading it all anyway uh, for, or for reading the book. So there's not that many places you can go. I mean, in the U.S., there's a few. You know, there's, there's a couple of NPR shows that if you get, um, you'll sell books. And there's New Yorker. Those people... Um, buy books, and then, you know, that you can get a good, big New York Times review. But other than that, um, it's, you have the same or better publicity available to you as a person. It's, it's a matter of having a community that your book serves, and then showing that community, you know, how they, how they can use it, how they, how they need it. It's finding a few champions you know, so it's really a matter of what is your what is your book about? And if your book is about a particular community and you have no connection to that community, then you've got to question yourself, well, why should this book appeal to that community? You know, so in the process of writing and researching whatever you've written, you should be making the contact in the community that you're advocating or that you're you're or that you're advising. So it kind of um it kind of takes care of itself. On the on the other hand, I mean, the book industry is different. You know, it's the book industry is not a place where anyone other than a writer um, can really make a living. 
And you know, for anyone else who's writing about the thing they do or writing about uh, uh, something that's in, in a more general career, then they have to look at their books differently than we used to. You know, the book is not the way you're going to be able to entirely support yourself, but the book is one of the ways in which you express, explain, and uh, what it is that you that you want to share and it's a calling card. It's a way that you create credibility for yourself as a speaker or advisor or worker um, on some other level. You've talked quite a bit about community, and certainly with regards to open source, the definition as it applies to software is, is very much formalized and in some regard, I guess, from my own personal perspective, degraded in the past uh, five years at least. When I started developing Noble Ape, there wasn't the term open source, but it was very much an open source project, not just the source code, the ideas that I wanted to put out there very quickly in order to get contributions and collaborations, which I think is really the, the, the root idea of the term open source. You've used open source recently in terms of a description of uh, Judaism, but also in terms of your experience of open source, would you recommend someone who was starting an interdisciplinary project to make it all open source, or do you think there still needs to be some, not necessarily proprietary, but at least closed information uh, in order to maintain value? It really depends on the person and the situation. You know, in the old days, the idea of making software in order to make money didn't was was kind of absurd anyway. You know, it wasn't what it, it just wasn't the the way that it worked. You know, but I guess that's also because we were in a culture where most of the people developing software already had jobs at universities. So that, you know, developing a piece of software was the equivalent today of when, you know, someone at Stanford works on developing a touch-sensitive robotic arm. You know, that you're doing it because it's sort of what you do. Um, and you're already, you're being paid to teach your classes or to be on the faculty somewhere. So it was um so it's kind of a very different model. Open source is usually it, it, that what it's best for is people working together to create a tool that they need that can allow them then to create value in other ways. In other words, we all need a good Linux OS, so we all sort of work on on Ubuntu or whatever aspect of Linux we do. Um and then there are people I guess at Ubuntu who have jobs. I think Ubuntu itself is part of a, it's, I think it's a non-profit as a company, but you can still make money because they do have a decent distribution and people donate money and people buy the disk, I guess, less and less now that we've got fast internet speeds. But it really depends on the, on the project, you know, uh, so if you're, if your goal is to, you know, create an alternative, you know, infrastructure for sharing, you know, then uh, something other than Facebook, and you don't want to dedicate your entire um, life to it, coding, then why not go completely open source and let people just, you know, work for you and with you at it? Um, if you're, you're, I mean, if you want to somehow make some money at it later, you could do one of those sort of more compromised open source models, you know, where, you know, where they kind of, I forgot what, what it's even called, where you open source part of the project, but then keep the other part not open source. You know, I mean, it, it really depends. I mean, I think that we're, we're hopefully living in a commercial ecology rather than a, a completely centrally defined economy. And as such, I think there's room for lots of different kinds of projects and models, you know, and I don't condemn anyone for developing something in a completely closed source way or for doing it in a, one of these new sort of more hybrid development models, um, as long as they don't, you know, pretend that doing one thing is another. In other words, if you're doing something closed source and just letting people have access to this one little thing so they can create value for your thing, then disclose that. Just be be honest about what you're doing so that, that people don't think they're becoming part of some totally crunchy, feel-good leftist commune when they're actually just, you know, working for, for Facebook or something. So one of the interesting things that has come through Noble Ape, certainly in the past three years, in terms of my own writing and also writing that I've been asked to do, is associated with this notion of, uh, well, this emerging notion of simulation science 
that actually the things that uh, can be gathered from within simulations, in fact, can impact real science. And the part that interests me in particular currently is the social sciences. In large reaction to, I guess, popular ideas like the singularity and these kind of things, I've used my experiences developing Noble Ape to have a kind of greater nihilist perspective in terms of really constantly questioning whether we can think of ourselves as entities in a simulation in terms of perhaps reduced free will, uh, limited productive intelligence, and the fact that we are constantly being externally optimised, uh, as some of your work has, has described, associated with currency in general. And I guess my question to you is, do you think there is benefit in doing uh, simulation analysis and moving it back into the social sciences and do you think we are, in fact, simulated entities on a number of levels? There's a few different ways to go on that. I mean, I think in terms of, of reality, I don't believe we're simulations, but I do believe that we are... Um, ex uh, I do believe we are projected into a simulation. So I think there's sort of both. You know, I think of, of matter and, uh, uh, you know, sort of matter from the Big Bang kind of matter as um, the simulation the, 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 of a sort. But um, I feel that uh, uh, what we think of as our consciousness is actually projected into the simulation. So it's more, uh, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's something like a puppet model, um, except that the, um, the, the, the puppet is matter evolving and becoming, I, I think as matter becomes more capable of, of hosting uh, our awareness, um, we get kind of, we get smarter. As far as simulations, you know, the, it's interesting, the most, uh, the most accurate simulations I've seen being done are these, you know, are things like trading algorithms. It seems like that's where the, the effort and money is going, um, which is odd, but it's kind of fun to watch them, you know, to watch these algorithms try to learn and and try to do what they're told to, and especially it's fun to watch the unpredictable results that that emerge from you know when they're actually put into use. But you know you could look at at the island of Manhattan now and look at the way it's actually being reconfigured to house servers that are closer to you know Wall Street trading desks than other servers in order for you know, algorithms to get a, you know, a two microsecond leg up on their competitors, it sort of then starts to look like, oh my gosh, that, you know, Manhattan, it's not that Manhattan is a simulation anymore, it's Manhattan is a microchip, you know, and Manhattan is a, is a, is a chip being configured for the needs of these simulations you're talking about. So it's, it, it becomes hard to figure out what's the, what is the processor and what is the processed in that case? You know, the, the algorithms I'm seeing being used in social sciences to kind of measure uh, uh, or predict human behavior seem uh, pretty primitive um, in comparison to the kinds of algorithms being used to uh, predict market behavior, you know, which is really distinct from, from human stuff. It's, it's I mean... You know, you can argue that it's human-driven and that, that, you know, that markets are the result of some kind of supply and demand of humans, but they're not anymore. You know, now markets really are um, – there's more algorithmic trading being done than human trading. So at this point, we're following, um, we're following the simulation rather than the other way around. So that's a very interesting point, and certainly in, in the analysis that I've put associated with this – it is not just that the algorithms are being optimized in terms of the trading, but that the publicly listed companies are being optimized by the trading. And the people in the publicly listed companies are perhaps chaotically, but certainly through some kind of, uh, you know, Spencerian uh, evolution, are being optimized with regards to the trading as well. And certainly if you uh, measure elements of, um, well, I, I guess the, the cubicle worker experience, it is constantly being optimized in large part by a kind of chaotic filtering down of these very algorithms. 
So I guess my, my analysis with regards to the effect of these algorithms is that they do very much affect humans uh, and in the end as well. And I think this is one of the curious things associated with the kinds of uh, movements. I mean, obviously, my, my background is primarily in software engineering, but you also see this in a wide variety of other uh, publicly listed uh, companies. And then obviously that uh, behavior filters even into the public sector as well. So there is a very curious optimization that is going on here, as you say, based on things which are not uh, in any way human. You made an interesting point with regards to the social sciences, because I think one of the, certainly the folks I've talked to through Biota associated with simulation science are constantly uh, trying to evangelize into the social sciences, almost convince the social scientists that there is benefit in the algorithms that they are developing. So what you've described is perhaps the five or 10 year lag uh, between uh, the folk that are actually developing the algorithms and how they can evangelize these algorithms into the uh, social sciences. Douglas, I think we've, we've covered almost everything I wanted to talk about uh, today. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about? Well, I thought you wanted to, like, reminisce. <laughs> well, I, I, that option is certainly open. And uh, my, my recollections of, uh, firstly, our initial correspondence, because it was probably two years prior to me starting the Nodal Lake development, but it was a long flight to Malaysia from uh, Sydney, Australia, I seem to recall, that I read Siberia cover to cover and then read it again when I was on location in Malaysia. And by chance, your email address was circulated in a local Malaysian tech publication and I got in contact with you. And it couldn't have been two years later, but it was probably about a year later that I actually floated the Noble 8 development again in Malaysia uh, following some extended correspondence with you. I guess my sense at that time was that you were pretty well, as you have been throughout your career, bombarded by like-minded folk that were either starting projects or interested in getting the, the latest Rushkoffian perspective. But I guess the first human interaction that I had with you was uh, in, I want to say, 1999, when I was doing a, a kind of tour of VR centres. Uh, and I remember I had dinner with you, uh, and it was the first sense that I got of you actually as a human rather than an intellectual, uh, well, uh. rather than a print, the printed word, um, which I guess had been the majority pretty well all of our correspondence up until that time. Do you actually recall that meeting? I don't. Um, the, I don't day know following, the day following, we met with a group of your friends, I think in Ziff Davis, who were bringing uh, Palestinians and uh, Israelis together. And I d displayed at that point uh, the Psi algorithm, which was flying across uh, a map of the world, I seem to recall. Uh, and that was the algorithm that I was, in, independently of my travels, also showing to uh, various tech companies, and I think Steve Wozniak and a variety of other folk along the way. And that was our second, well, I mean, it was the day after our, our dinner and extended discussion. Is that, were we as East Coast or West Coast? East Coast. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, I met you initially in New York. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. The thing that I, I was interested um, in you then and and still now is um i don't know if you know you see my my st strange entree into um technology was as a uh, as an audiophile you know i was a, i was a hi-fi buff so you know what i don't understand about uh microchips i do understand about solid state you know I, that's i'm i'm of the transistor generation so um I've I've always had um, both actual and philosophical problems with digital sound, you know, with, with not just the MP3 algorithm, but but CDs and ever since the beginning. And I'm so I'm both a computer enthusiast and a net enthusiast and a um, anti-digital extremist in terms of the reproduction technologies that I expose myself to. So when, uh, and that's for, for all the, the old fashioned reasons about analog being warmer and curvilinear and smooth and digital being chopped up and discrete. And, uh, I would argue frying of the nervous system, even if you can't, um, consciously perceive of the difference. So when, uh, I was interested in games and all, and when I first saw what you were doing, I was intrigued about it because 
to me, it was the visual equivalent of using analog synthesizer instead of a digital synthesizer to generate visuals, which so, may or may not be true. <laughs> yes. um, but do you know what I mean? In other words, that you're saying, okay, here's a simple sine wave, here's a simple sawtooth wave, and here's how you make a shape with it. Let's build a world using fundamental parts instead of let's sample a world and manipulate those samples. Certainly. And I guess the, the long-term problem with this kind of development is that things moved so, from, from the point that I met you on, things moved so divergently from that idea. I mean, it was already divergent, as you've described. But I still maintain a, a cross-platform, independent graphics algorithm based on those very principles. These days, people just look at it and think that it's OpenGL. I mean, they don't have a concept that the underlying mathematics are, are so philosophically different. But unfortunately, graphics technology has moved in such a tangential but extremely uh, strong direction away from these kind of ideas that um, it's moved more from, well, although I still maintain the, the graphics algorithm, I've had to maintain that kind of uh, an radical analog uh, philosophy associated with the other aspects of the simulation. And more recently, it's been an ability to map some of that uh, into kind of historical social algorithms and things like that, but just taking this particular perspective as you've distilled, uh, and also some of the other unique elements of mobile app development and seeing what actually comes out from that. So, yes, I do recall those conversations early on, and I think what's interesting is really I've maintained that philosophy very strongly within the development, but it's as I look at it now, the things that I'm interested in doing, because the underlying simulation is now so rich, it's had... Uh, well, recently, probably three years of uh, full-time contribution uh, from a fellow in the UK who's very interested in taking uh, what you've described in, in uh, graphics and audio sense, but using that for the social simulation component of Noble Ape. Uh, and in parallel to this, there is two generations of potential users who are now so extremely uh, emerged in kind of contemporary video games and hyper-polygonal realities that... Uh, there needs to be almost some uh, some bridge between where Noble Ape is currently and where these folk are in order to get, I guess, some popular interest back into the simulation. There's an amazing level of detail uh, under there, but describing this in a graphical environment requires, uh, you know, unfortunately, not a defection in terms of the, the underlying ideas, but probably a defection in terms of the underlying graphics, just because things have, have changed in such a, a strong direction. Right. So in terms of our meetings, the next time I think we physically met was again in New York, and I seem to actually I don't. This is where it gets this is where it gets a little fuzzy. I returned to uh, the Bay Area, and I can't recall whether you came to the Bay Area or I came to New York next. But I went to New York on a couple of occasions associated with a startup that I was working uh, with at the time that was developing a small handheld toy. Uh, right, which, the Hawaiian game maker. Yes, and in in contrast, you had you were working with a similar startup, but I don't think they had the underlying technology. They were interested in the licensing options associated with that, but also some of the play elements. So that kind of fitted perfectly together in terms of our our particular interests at the time, and also threw together our particular posses at the time as well. I seem to recall. I think you probably only came to the Bay Area maybe once over that period, because I seem to remember a large lunch that had a variety of the players uh, at the time. Yeah, some strange ex-Apple people, and it was a... Yeah, you, you were running with quite a crowd. But yeah, and then you had, you know, which is, I suppose, typical. You had run-ins with, I mean, people who may have, you know, meant the best at a certain moment and then turned into uh, just terrible um, business partners. I mean, you had you had a, a fair share of the the dot com. You know, uh, I mean, there was really awful people. There were there were awful people got involved in these businesses, and 
sometimes went in them for the right reasons, but they had had so little experience with money and business that the minute they got a taste of that, they turned worse than traditional business people. It really got to the point where I started to trust regular business people more than, you know, lefties uh, or progressive people who were suddenly thrust into the business world. It was almost like, you know, when you see a, a guru from India come to the U.S. and all of a sudden they become, they end up with like 30 sex slaves because they've just never been in an environment where they can just, you know, get oral sex for being holy, you know, <laughs> and, it's just, and, they, and they go nuts. It's like a lot of these people, um, surprisingly, as far as I could tell, ended up just becoming uh, almost criminal in the way that they uh, attempted to um, exploit you and the, and the technologies you developed. I think you've, you've said exactly what I never say associated with that experience. And my, the way that I described that experience publicly was that I spent time in the Bay Area and then when things collapsed, I moved to the UK. Uh, the, the emotional element associated with that, I mean, my reflection is that a number of the people I was dealing with did have money. They were quintessentially kind of Bay Area lefties in terms of, you know, uh, paying paying. Uh, folk with improper documentation and things like that in order to save money and all the kind of classic cliches associated with the Bay Area left. But they, I guess my experience was that they carried their own psychologies through the process and as you've described, their psychologies were kind of warped through aspects of the process. But certainly my own philosophies were, I don't know, not necessarily reinforced, but when I went to the UK, it was very much, let me reclaim what I actually missed when I was in the Bay Area. And I think the experiences that I had uh, in particular, I don't know whether I romanticised the, the stuff that you've described associated with kind of traditional business folk, because I think there are, there are fundamental flaws in all these things, but I certainly reclaimed what I enjoyed from the original Noble Ape development and tried to divorce myself from a lot of the experiences that I saw when I was in the Bay Area. And it's funny, actually, because I went back to the Bay Area to give two talks. I gave a talk at Intel and a talk at Stanford, and then met with folks at Apple and did a brief travel around the Bay Area. I hadn't been to the Bay Area for about... I went briefly in 2005 just for a job interview with a startup that collapsed, but that was literally get off the plane, go to the startup, get back on the plane, fly out again. And I guess my sense from doing the talks was that the Bay Area was still a toxic place for me. But then I had my brother coming over and I took him around the Bay Area and I realized there were actually parts of the Bay Area that I liked that were divorced from these experiences. Things like wandering around Berkeley, secondhand bookstores, all the things that were more associated with buying records, all the things that were associated with, uh, with what you've described. And yeah, I think um, certainly... Having left the Bay Area and the way in which I left the Bay Area, I did have to decompress from those experiences. But I think what I've tried to maintain is the stuff that was prior to the Bay Area and the Noble Ape development. And I think what's interesting in terms of our own communication was, I think I came to uh, New York in May 2001, and then I had a brief conversation with you following. The only thing that I recall from that conversation is you were talking about jackass at the time. Uh, and the, the, the striking thing there is that I've, I have a friendship with some of the folks who were involved with Jackass that came from exactly what you're describing, this great kind of decompression period uh, that they also experienced um, slightly after my experience. But in terms of kind of kinship, and one of the fellows is from Melbourne originally, uh, and, you know, these kind of things maintained a, a, a kind of kinship with those people as well. It's, yeah, it's a kind of curious experience now, particularly as, you know, there are these kind of twinges that things may be returning in the Bay Area to the kind of experiences that, uh, that I had in the, the late 90s, early 2000s in terms of potential new investment, percentage of acquisition and these kind of things as opposed to IPO. Um, and I think, yeah, it's an interesting mentality that those of us that have had the experience for the first time, probably as you described, should actually talk about what the experience was like. Uh, and I guess I'm, on my own part, I just don't do that because my, my movement was so radical. I mean, I moved from the Bay Area to literally living in, um, you know, the YMCA in Leicester with a gr group of people that were being deported. It's kind of tuberculosis scare going through and just really hit the ground very hard, actually, from my experiences in the Bay Area. 
and from there have just kind of normalised that. So in terms of greater reminiscing, I, I caught up with you, I think, probably a couple of years ago here in Las Vegas. Uh, and I think that was, the, that was our last time where we had a, a proper decent conversation and a meal. And um, I don't know, it was... Uh, I don't know how this thing kind of continues in terms of the ongoing discussion, because you've certainly taken a number of different turns and directions, and I, I read your stuff periodically and agree with some of it, and as with Siberia, disagree with a good portion of it. But um, it is it is a, an interesting kind of continued uh, continued discussion that we seem to have periodically. In terms of noble ape as a kind of broader idea, you haven't really. I mean, I, I don't get the sense from setting up this call that you followed any of the recent ebbs and flows. Uh, but uh, I don't know. What would your concluding thoughts be at this point? You know, I haven't followed the the ebbs and flows. I mean, the 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 thing that always um, surprised me was there was this like giant um, community of people who were involved in it, and I, I always wondered what if they had any perception of you. In other words, I <laughs> met you before Noble Eight. You know, so here's this person who did this thing that's sitting on a computer, you know, on a fucking laptop or something, and there are these people all over who are talking about it and engaging with it, and 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 I just wondered if they thought of it as like, do you have some institution somewhere, or having these <laughs> offices, you know what I mean, the yeah. Noble Eight suites or something, I always wondered what that, what that perception, what that is, you know, because most of the things that I've seen online or, or engaged with through the internet... Um, I've only engaged with through the internet, and there are very few things that um, happen sort of um, human that I met the human before I saw the disc. So it's um, it's odd. That's odd. It's just it, it's odd. So I, I I don't you know I don't know what happened. I, I just know that then it got into music and all sorts of other strangeness. Um, and I just always wondered you know what it would be like to try to get you know thousand people together in one space and have them who've interacted with this thing and just to see you know almost like a uh, uh world of warcraft conference when Certainly. they all come together yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's very nice to actually survey that in some real sense i mean what i tried to do in the bay area with the talks was do that and i had a, a number of key people turn up to the talks and it kind of progressed after that in terms of long-term discussion but right. I do also, I mean, as, as you know, my mother was a diplomat and still goes back into that occasionally, and I do like aspects of having a public face and a private face. Right. And I think that's something that you've also maintained as well, um, and I think it's critical. But you're right, the notion of noble ape as a thing and the notion of me as a person are two quite distinct entities. But it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today, Doug. And with you. I mean, we should find new excuses to, uh, to interact. I guess we'll... Uh, we can uh, we can call each other on regular on regular phone somehow. When uh, I can call you while you're at work this time. <laughs> Very good. Very, All right, you'd be good. You too, Douglas. It's been a pleasure. Take care. Okay. Bye bye.